watch the TV. Are you serious? Where? I don't know. Oh, I don't yeah. have the map. We have to walk around. We're to gonna to follow you. Find this thing. Oh, there he is. Bet. He got 14 minutes. Ooh, my heart is racing right now. I'm so close to getting to complete the decks. How close are you? All I need is the regional Pokemon and a Blastoise, a Fable, and a Monk. Oh. That's it? Yeah. And then the legendary birds and you and you two. Maybe I got to hit my chance. Keep all these other ones. I, I need two Pokemon. That's all you need? I need Alakazam and Charizard right now. I got Charizard and I got Alakazam. Where'd you get your Charmanders? From here. I caught okay. a Charmander. MFA was a couple days ago. Okay. I caught a Charmander, then next thing you know, Charm Char Char Charizard. What attacks? attacks? Charizard spawned here? Yeah. Venusaur spawned here too. Oh, yeah. Venusaur and Blastoise. I have a couple Blastoise. Hello and welcome to Anthropod. My name is David Lyons and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're going to explore the Pokemon Go phenomenon in Detroit and talk about why you should pay attention to this new game. First, some background. If you haven't heard of it already, Pokemon Go is an augmented reality app that was released in July of 2016. It is a location-based game where players walk around collecting items and catching Pokemon in the wild. The wild, meaning anywhere from your neighborhood park to our place of focus, the Renaissance Center in downtown Detroit. During this episode, you may hear my guests and I refer to it as the Rensen. It is also the GM World headquarters and hands down the best place to play Pokemon Go in the state of Michigan. In order to begin production on this podcast, I first had to learn to play the game. Over the course of two months, I did just that. I downloaded the app, walked around with my head down, and raced to catch rare Pokemon when they showed up on the map, all while conducting interviews with fellow players at the Renaissance Center. Later, I sat down with a couple of academics to gain insight into what Pokemon Go can tell us about our world and our culture. We discussed what augmented reality can show us in regards to social justice, gentrification, access to technology, and public space. Let's start with my first guest, Dr. John Cheney Lippold from the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. He specializes in digital studies, algorithms, and identity, and has a book coming out called We Are Data by NYU Press. I started off by asking him to tell me a bit more about augmented reality in today's world. There's a lot of tech companies that are betting a lot on it. You probably encounter them with um, a lot of the virtuality stuff, but a lot of video game companies, as you, as you suggested. But uh, I would think that we have to think about augmented reality in a long form. Even something as basic as a map is mm -hmm. a kind of augmented reality. It's a way to say, I have information that is not just on the train of what is, but is something that is you know, put upon it. And so maps, who had access to maps was once a very powerful thing. Um, who mm -hmm. has access to like census data? Who has access to rosters of where people live or what kinds of people live there? So in the way that a lot of technology people, you always have to historicize the fact that no technology is so new that it's outside the bounds of mm -hmm. history. But in terms of the contemporary thought, I, I, with Pokemon Go, it's one of the kind of most obvious claims to this is changing how we interact socially. A lot of arguments said that technology in the past, technology is isolating, you know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of books that were in the 90s and early 2000s that more or less had this thesis of, um, from Putnam's, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, mm -hmm. that as people move into their houses and have access to the world throughout, um, within, from within their house, we 
telephones or television or internet that people are less likely to be collectively understanding themselves. So less mm -hmm. likely to be in bowling leagues to follow that argument, but or just less likely to have this face-to-face -face mediation a lot of people lament in contemporary mm -hmm. worlds. There's something to that, that in, a, lot of, a lot of people criticize the overemphasis on tech to say that people are not as empathetic because you can just have a mean tweet and you don't actually see the tears on the people's face. Uh -huh. um, but in terms of augmented reality, games seem to be the first place that a lot of innovations start because it's a place of play. It's mm -hmm. a place where it doesn't have to be perfect, unlike in a business sphere or like in a, a sphere where we're actually saying, I'm gonna make a decision that will affect people's lives in the immediate sense. Augmented reality isn't there yet, but also to be honest that a lot of the worlds where, a lot of the spaces where technology also is tried out is in the realm of pornography. So you have video mm -hmm. games, you have pornography, and that's where you see augmented reality being invested in. Mm -hmm. So with the case of Pokemon Go, you had, um, as you probably know, this Niantic, the company who did it, had Ingress as their first trial augmented reality game that was widely popular with a certain group of people. And then with the cultural brand of Pokemon helping the second mm -hmm. iteration, you see the growth of it. Um, I think we can come to expect in the way that Google Glass was trying to say, I'm going to give you another vantage point to the world. You're going to see the world, but you're also going to see the temperature. You're going to see your email in actual physical space. That that was toyed around with and people felt uncomfortable with it, but I totally see it creeping in. Mm -hmm. um, how that will happen, I'm not a prophet, nor do I like to actually <laughs> suggest that something's going to happen because rarely will it in the yeah. way that I say it. But I think that in terms of augmented reality, it is there's only a limited amount of space in the world, mm -hmm. in physical worlds. So it makes sense to have a lens in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think when people are on their phones all the time or people are like chatting while they're walking to the, to the coffee shop, that, that is just gonna make more, it's gonna be made more seamless. One of my favorite kind of quotes that, or quotations that, about technology is this guy named Melvin Kranzberg who says, technology is neither good nor bad nor neutral which a lot of people think that technology aids social progress, it aids economic progress. But then you have to step back and say, well, what, what actually is it doing? Mm -hmm. And it's like technology's not making us zombies, nor is it you know, making everybody not poor, um, but it's doing something in a very in interesting way. And so when we say it's not neutral, it's to also say then that there are pre-programmed biases. Mm -hmm. When you code a game, any decision, when you code it, is actually determining people's lives in a way that you might not think of when you're actually writing the code at a terminal. But it does, as you kind of suggest, have this extraordinary effect on mm -hmm. people's lives. All of this talk got me thinking. How does this game affect players' social lives? While conducting field interviews at the Rensen, I met a veteran player, Trainer Joe, and he told me all about friendship and Pokemon. I have like a, a base group of like probably 20 people that, that I pretty much hang out with and go everywhere with. Like my buddies that just walked by with uh, little Ash. Mm -hmm. They're part of my group, but uh, I mean, people. I, I'm the type of person like the more the merrier. So I mean, like and like, and that's how the game works too. The more people you have in a group, the better stuff you're gonna catch in a faster at a faster rate. When it first came out, I met probably 50 people right off the bat, and probably probably like I said, 10 of them uh, I've stayed close with. Like I I've hung out with since the game started, and you know I brought. I brought previous friends from uh, my past life into the game, and when when we're all together, grouped up, they know there's a, bu a bunch of us here, so they just send them down. 
It sounds like Trainer Joe and company enjoy playing together and have established a solid new friend group. This echoes a similar thing I noticed while I was playing. People hunt in groups. First, you see one or two people briskly moving in a direction, then a few strangers follow close behind, hoping the pack leader might know something they don't. Before long, there can be a group of 10 or more people moving in an amorphous mass, all hunting the same Pokemon together. It kind of reminds me of our earlier days as hunter-gatherers. Was I witnessing some kind of digital altruism as a result of Pokemon Go? I started to think more about what Dr. Cheney Lippold said regarding technology being neither good nor bad nor neutral. This brings to mind the gentrification debate in Detroit, whether it be the growing tech industry, predatory real estate investors, or simply suburban teens coming to the city for the first time. I decided to talk to our second guest, longtime Detroit resident and anthropologist, Dr. Eric Montgomery from Wayne State University, who specializes in visual anthropology, peace and conflict, and the anthropology of religion, and has a book coming out called Ethnography of a Voodoo Shrine in Southern Togo by Brill Press. Let's hear what Dr. Montgomery has to say about gentrification. Um, we've talked a lot about gentrification, and we've seen how Brooklyn and San Francisco and Portland and even parts of Chicago have gone. Um, and it's a far cry, th those cities are a far cry from the struggling reputations they once had. And in Detroit, there's a lot of talk of gentrification. Even right around here at Wayne State, where we're at here in Midtown, I rented a place for $250 a month uh, about 10, 15 years ago. That's over $1,200 a month now. So the $650 million they've put here just in Midtown has turned into high-end retailers, luxury apartments, um, and then there's a lot of talk, well, where do the poor folks go? And this is a real issue. What the Knight Foundation and others doing research with gentrification in Detroit specifically and, people's, and also measuring people's civic engagement is that the number one problem still without a doubt is concentrated poverty. So obviously the next question would be does Pokemon Go and other uh, socializing things through technology like this, is there a way that they can um, you know, maybe shrink the gap between uh, different classes um, because mm -hmm. we know that the gap between rich and poor is continuing to widen. And that yeah. is the case not just in downtown Detroit but in midtown Detroit as a whole. Mm -hmm. In fact, just being in midtown Detroit right here where we are, the income around us, a one mile radius around us, is 35% less than the people who are living in just in midtown right mm -hmm. now. And my other thought that immediately sparked to mind when you started talking to me about gentrification and mm -hmm. things like that was this whole notion of socializing through technology because it's been such a, a, a huge issue in anthropology especially the last 10 or 20 years. We know that not just in Detroit, but around the world, that people based on income are disenfranchised from technology. We know that that inhibits their uh, upward mobility. Uh, we also know that people of color, particularly black people, and specifically uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, has the least developed infrastructure for technology. Mm -hmm. um, although the amount of people joining in on it and socializing, especially via social media, is growing. Talking with Dr. Montgomery got me thinking. If Pokemon Go lives in both the digital world and the physical space, who's getting left out? In my time playing and interviewing people, I found out that playing Pokemon Go in rural areas doesn't really happen. Is this some form of digital gentrification? How does Pokemon Go highlight issues of mobile access to rural areas? I asked Dr. Cheney Lippold what he thought. One of the biggest uh, issues that I see with the game and that a lot of people have is that uh, you can't really play the game in a rural area. Rural area. You have to be, well, first of all, you have to have a phone that can run the app, which most smartphones now, but not everybody has a smartphone that can run it. You have to have at least a little bit of data or a Wi-Fi connection. Mm -hmm. It's not heavy on data, but it takes some. 
And third of all, most importantly, you need to be in an urban area that mm-hmm. actually has players and Poke Stops, which is where you stop to get stuff, and Pokemon don't pop up yeah. in rural areas because it it's specifically written to mm-hmm. put more Pokemon near more people. Mm-hmm. So that it brings up an issue, which is a much larger issue of digital worlds, which is the context of being in a rural area and not having access to the digital world. Yeah. And um, I wonder, have you come across in your in your work with identity and, yeah. and technology and everything, how has that played into it, access and... That's- very interesting. Um, when you're talking, it reminds me immediately about um, an article by this journalist. Her name's Aura Bogado. She writes for Grist, which is an environmental organization. She used to write for The Nation. Um, but she, right when Pokemon Go came out, she had these more or less exact points that were very useful to think about the lived experience of, of you know, life in a rural area. She also focuses on Native American reservations. But just in the ways that existing Pokestops or existing data that created the Pokemon terrain, they're based on urban areas, but they're also based on where people are using existing technology. So in the rural areas, often you have to drive two hours to get to the closest Pokestop. Um, in some native reservations, in Pine Ridge, which is a very famous reservation, right, there's only two Pokestops, mm-hmm. I think. Um, other reservations, there's none. Mm-hmm. Um, in rural areas, this also, but this this has a historical thing too, right? Like it mirrors a lot of um, back in the mid 20th century when they were doing the copper wire to bring um, telephony to people in rural areas. The long distance charge that everybody, you know, was very attendant to in the 90s and before, um, before cell phones and before like the, re- the destru- destruction of distance, they call it. Um, that those are actually ways to subsidize the very labor and very capital-intensive um, costs that get mm. copper wire to you know Nebraska or to some North Dakota mm-hmm. um, area. So you have this being this in telephony. You have this you know really good example of how you, the infrastructure requires you to spend a little bit more money to get to these excess people, even though it might not be in terms of like market mm-hmm. market reasons. It might not be efficient or economical. But what happens is. When that kind of stops, and often when regulation of you have to provide the service for everybody, mm-hmm. when you think about how cable internet works, that cable internet doesn't have to go to North Dakota. Mm-hmm. If it's not profitable, they're not going to have a fiber line. Right. So what has happened, as you pointed out, is there's, there's not a lot of high-speed internet in the rural areas vis-a-vis the urban areas. And in a lot of places, um, yeah, you don't have access to it. And so if you don't have access to it, you have to pay ex- extra surcharge or your data plan or whatever. But it's also to say that um, if we're talking about social groups, that if you're playing Pokemon Go, maybe your friends don't play it, but there are other people that you meet in the urban area Mm. that are playing it and you meet them and you have this kind of nice social connection based Mm -hmm. on the game, that if you're going to say technology will connect us all, you have to think about how technology is not connecting us all and Mm. what are the actual procedures that would make Niantic, the company that makes Pokemon Go, how would they address this gap and they have to right because it, it's not going to be useful it's going to be critiqued um, but also you're going to have this huge swath of players who are not going to be able to connect to, um, to the game so it's this weird kind of market logic but also idea of access universal mm-hmm. access we should be able to do it if it's not a pokemon go stop it should be you know online banking or it should be mm-hmm. access to news trainer joe who you listened to earlier also had thoughts on rural pokemon go in my opinion, it's kind of unfair. I think they should have like scattered it, and I realized that the GPS 
um, signals are pinging a lot closer together down here because of everybody in the building, but yeah. I still think they could have like scattered it so it's not, oh, let's all go to one spot and just sit here and walk around all the time. Let's actually adventure. You know, yeah, that's like, one thing that's kind of weird is like when you, if you, the whole point is like going out in the wild and stuff, right. but it's missing. And also, if you don't live anywhere near downtown, right. how are you going to come and play here? Yeah, like supposedly, if you go online, it'll tell you what um, each type where to find them like in an area like for for dragons for like Dratini supposedly it's at monuments and near the water obviously but like for um, Charmanders and like fire Pokemon it says that you can find them out in farmland gas stations and stuff like that but like if you go out into the farmland you're gonna lose your signal and you're not gonna be able to play. Just to reference the Bogato article on Grist um, again um, she wrote about this in a very kind of explicit way saying that access is an issue but also survival is an issue. Um, thinking about black bodies using this technology, this augmented reality, is very different than white bodies. And a way to think about this is to just think about a person loitering, which is what Pokemon Go really Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that is read in different, loitering is read in different ways across different races. And we can think of how even the Department of Homeland Security, they in the kind of, if you see something, say something rhetoric, they actually have on their site, terrorist activity is loitering around urban centers or places in the urban mm -hmm. center. So if you are of a Arab American looking sort, or mm -hmm. if you are a non, wh whatever racial identification that will be then seen as, as terroristic in the eyes of um, um, kind of white America, they will be necessarily connected to this larger governmental logic of, if somebody's loitering, they could be a terrorist. So follow right. them, watch them, call the cops on them. And so if I, I mean, if I was playing the game and I was stopped by a cop because I was playing a game, I'd be livid, but also I'd be much less likely to play the game. Mm -hmm. And so this, in Pokemon Go, you can think it's just a game, it's just Pokemon. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss anything, but it is a very small part of the world. But I think a lot of these questions that you're raising, a lot of the questions that Arbogato was writing about is, this is just the first step in, if we're gonna think about augmented reality writ large in the next 20 years, much like pornography is the maybe the first step of a lot of technological developments that we have to stop these biases and question really what technologies mm. are doing at the first step. Mm, because right. it's gonna, if, if you don't teach engineers who are writing the code that there are these issues, you're not gonna be able to you know, write good code in 20 years. Especially. Yeah. yeah, and the further along you get, the harder it goes, harder it is to go back because especially with writing code and everything yeah. and programming, like you build on what was there before. So you can't just make a little change and everything's yeah. better. I mean, Precisely. It's all about the foundation. So yeah, I can see how this is a crucial moment as far as augmented reality is yeah. concerned. So this, this, yeah, it's an event where I think a lot of critical voices are necessary and everybody can complain about how technology is being criticized and criticized and criticized, but the only way technology really changes if you point it out that this is maybe helping 90% of the people do whatever, but there's still 10%. Or in the mm -hmm. case of Pokemon Go, it's probably helping like 50, 60% of the baby population in Detroit or other areas who are not really affected by these problems, mm -hmm. but then everybody else is gonna have a little bit of a different experience and to attend to that difference, be it being stopped by a cop or being have your life threatened or be it just being annoyed a little bit, mm -hmm. all of these things deserve just as much attention than other people who yeah. are using successfully. Yeah. So if coding is not a purely objective technical realm, and we know that racial bias is written into the code of everyday apps from Candy Crush to Pokemon Go, I got to thinking, can we use programming to create positive change? 
And how can anthropologists learn from Pokemon Go and other augmented reality apps to inform their research designs and explore new methods? I went back to Dr. Montgomery to find out. I don't think just for anthropologists. I think for social scientists or anyone concerned with society in general that um, this is fruitful. But regarding new trends and theories, I'll share a quick little story with you. Here in the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, where I teach, um, the, old, the longest serving peace and conflict department in the country, we just had a visiting scholar from, and you know about this too, David, um, Paula Torres, or Paula Porres from Colombia. Everyone thought, kind of like Brexit, kind of like the election last night, that it was going to go one way. But the peace agreement with FARC actually got turned down, to everyone's surprise. The, the visiting scholar who's here, she's working on, on uh, Somos Capeses and Comunicaciones and Paz.com, uh, this great NGO doing great work in actually over 50 countries in Colombia. And through all their tutelage, all their methodologies, all the pedagogical approaches, activities they try to teach about bullying, um, race, uh, gender issues, in the last six weeks, the actual testing, the outcome of the testing has gone up <clears throat> um, a full grade and a half. And the reason why is because they're doing an augmented reality, a virtual reality really? with peace. And what happens is, is not only do they have designers and people writing algorithms and anime people developing the characters, but they let the students develop the characters themselves and they let the students actually put the words into what is being said based on their past experience. Oh. So they build these conflict circles, so you get some, you know, you get a lighter skinned kid from uh, Medellin and a darker person, uh, you know, from the Pacific Coast uh, that's mostly Africano, uh, talking about what they think of white people and what white people think of black people and sometimes what it's based on age. And, the gr and a great thing happened with this augmented reality, not only do kids understand peace and did they have a vested interest in peace, but the families of people, including drug dealers who saw their kids doing these virtual projects, encouraged it to open it up to their cousins and other family members. None of them wanted everyone else doing it, even though there's a lot of money in the game. And they weren't quite there until the augmented reality came, because that's wow. how effective, because we're learning in new ways. It's not, we think about the five cents model, talking about new trends and theories in anthropology. And you know that Dr. Vanier and I are coming out with a new book on, on voodoo shrines. And, and a big part of our approach has been what's called sensory anthropology or sensing anthropology. We always hear about the five senses, hearing, see, seeing, smelling, touching, so on and so forth. But where I do my research in Africa, they have sese le lame, which means touch, touch, feel, feel inside. And that's what we would call intuition. Mm -hmm. They also have another ethnic term that I'm not remember, uh, a term that refers to balance. Balance and intuition come in front of seeing and hearing in the mm -hmm. Ave spectrum. So even our very senses of what five or what our five senses are, which has been written since for eons in Western culture, is in and of itself problematic. Mm. We know. I know. I'll give you another example of why we need to change our trends and theories and make them more technologically uh, efficient. When I show my ethnographic films about voodoo in Africa, kids get it. They ask questions. I can use my a book or articles and teach about voodoo, and they don't get it as, not only do they not get it as well and as thoroughly, they don't get it as quickly. And a lot of this is ADD culture, attention deficit disorder. So we know kids would rather watch films than read books. Mm -hmm. We know kids that would rather work on a piece, augmented reality, and creating characters than read about the policy of the Colombian. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't think that this is just a good thing. I think this is a mandated, necessary it's thing. Necessary. If we really want to bring folks into, the, uh, you know, if we really want to teach kids how to critically think, and to critically write. We have to do it on their terms, and a big part of that is by changing our methodologies, changing our pedagogy, and changing our theories and ideas about how people learn. Mm. And learning how to learn is the biggest idea. Mm. And I think what we can do with things like Pokemon Go, when I look at Pokemon Go, it sort of reflects my own pedagogical imperative as a teacher, holism, mm. very holistic. Right? It's, mm -hmm. including not, it's including people from different incomes, different ethnics, different locations, mm -hmm. which we've talked about. 
the concept of culture, which is the most important concept at all in anthropology, um, can be taught through Pokemon Go because people from different cultures and different backgrounds are now talking to each other. Even if it's just about Pokemon Go, you're still getting certain reads about certain people that you might not, wise, you might not have otherwise know. And the final thing about anthropology in my approach that I think Pokemon Go assists with is relativity. Hmm. Is this notion of you know this notion that we know ethnocentrism is problematic, judging cultures on their own culture and their own merits. I don't think you can do that until you've walked a day in their shoes or walked mm -hmm. a couple miles with your phone in your face chasing squirtles, right? During my research, I did end up coming across people from different cultures and backgrounds. What I found was that most players came from the suburbs and represented a distribution of ethnicity and gender you would expect from the Metro Detroit area, mostly white men and women with some Latino, African-American, and Arab-American players in there, too. Let's listen to a few players I talked to about Pokemon Go at the Rensen. I think we started well, about a, coming down here about a month ago, and uh, that was uh, through the uh, website Pokevision when that was up. And then uh, we used it, and it showed that this was like a hot area for like different Pokemons. And then that's when we start coming here. Yeah, I mean, ever since Pokemon, we start coming here maybe at least at least once a week, you know, uh, including the uh, uh, the uh, river walk, and uh, even by the park over there. So the plaza, uh, campus marshes. Yeah, campus marshes. Yeah. So again, just a good excuse to to walk out there and get to another area, which is really nice down there too. And they have a lot of spots for. Uh, for reading, just to lay down, you know, for the kids and stuff like that. So, did you come to the Rensen ever before Pokemon? No, no, never have. I didn't even know what it was. I mean, I've seen it before, but I thought it was like a exclusive GM, you know, factory or something like that. But not never, maybe. Before. Well, it's kind of a good way to see the rest of the city. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because you always looking for like a new spot, like in regards to Pokemon, you always looking for a new spot where you can find different Pokemon. So it, it helps to discover. Mm -hmm. and explore some of the areas in the city, you know? That's cool. Yeah, it's a good excuse to get to know some other people. Mm -hmm. I started actually, um, my work put on an event up here. I walked up the very first day of our event and it was like two growlers, you know, sand shrew, cue bones, things that like aren't that amazing, but like you don't see playing in your normal places. Start coming a couple days and it's like, wow, it's just what it is here. It's just anything and everything. Um, and ever since that first day I came here, it was like, I was broken, I can't play anywhere else to be honest. It's anywhere else I play is no fun. It's air conditioned, it's inside, which is always nice. Mm -hmm. um, direct access to the people mover. So one, the just overall volume of people with smartphones in the upper levels draws in a lot of good Pokemon, draws in a lot of cell activity. And then all the players that are normally here draw in a lot more Pokemon. And that's pretty much the best part about it, is the wide variety. You're not catching the same thing over and over again. You have a chance to get just about anything I'd say here. Um, that's the best, but I do meet a lot of cool people here. A lot of, a lot of smart players, a lot of interesting players. Like this guy recording a podcast here, like, you know, you're not gonna catch that everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I never really came down to downtown Detroit before. Okay. Um, just for the mere fact of, there wasn't a Well, I didn't think there was a whole lot to do, but since Pokemon Go has come out, I must definitely have seen a lot more activities to do. The river walk, that was mm. awesome. Check that out last week. I was, most definitely that. I've never been to the Rensen until Pokemon Go came out. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this place is awesome. I've since like gone around and told friends, like, dude, you gotta check out Rensen, and you know, everyone's kind of come out here. I actually ran into my brother and all their friends last week. Really? Same thing. They never, yeah, yeah, they never been to the Rensen, but they came out here. Yeah, I mean, awesome. I'm like, since coming here, I want to book a night here at least one night yeah, and stay. 
yeah, definitely has generated some money and from us at least. If they're missing these little gems, what else is there out there? And right. in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah. Because it doesn't feel like you're in Detroit. No. As you may have noticed, I got some pretty positive responses from everyone I interviewed. They enjoy coming downtown and they don't feel scared or threatened. Some came to Detroit regularly before playing the game, some didn't. I started to wonder though, do people playing Pokemon Go in the heart of downtown care about the rest of Detroit? Here's Dr. Montgomery. Although we are seeing some very encouraging signs, not just the diversification of Detroit, but some gains in income levels. However, we're seeing some discouraging things as well. Downtown's booming, Midtown's booming, neighborhoods are quote-unquote war zones. Mm -hmm. The average, uh, we have one in two kids tonight. In 2016, the day after the election, they will go to bed hungry. And you know what, people playing Pokemon Go at the Rensen are not going to see the war zone quote-unquote neighborhoods. No. And that's one of the, that is, I would say, a it's, pretty it's strong pick and, It's pick-and-choose journalism, and it's also pick-and-choose experience. Even though you're having a mm -hmm. positive experience at the Renaissance then, in a way that sort of obscures the reality around us. Yep. However, I, I would argue that the more kids come down, even if they're living in a, in a silo that is the Renaissance Center, mm -hmm. right, even though there's plenty of windows, at some point, the more you come down and the more people you meet, you're going to start to see things in a new way. It's going to invoke empathy. And mm -hmm. this is what we know as anthropology, long longitudinal research. The more you hang out with people, the more you get to know them. Before you know it, you're eating like them. And, mm -hmm. then you're, and, and the other great thing is that comes out of this is not just the empathy that needs to come for folks of color or for poverty. But once you start to get the big picture, you understand more about yourself mm -hmm. and, how your own, and how your own agency throughout the past has been a part. Your agency, the agency and structure are linked, right? They're a dialectic that are going on all the time. Um, so yeah, and I, I think Pokemon Go is very telling. That's sort of like pulling the curtain up and everyone's on stage. And you could argue, well, everyone's heads in their cell phone to a certain extent. Um, but that's not entirely true. At some point they do talk. Uh, sometimes people have met friends. Sometimes people from Pokemon Go have decided to move down here or even look for a job while they're down here. So there is some sort of a correlation between Pokemon Go opening people up to the city and whether people are going to stay. Now how we get those folks to be actively engaged, to be civically engaged, um, I don't think that's a Pokemon Go problem, I think that's an American problem. Yeah, and I think that's something that anthropologists can look at critically. Absolutely. Um, while talking with Dr. Montgomery about how Pokemon Go fits in the bigger picture of Detroit, I realized I needed to hear from Detroit residents who have seen the city change over the last few decades. Just outside the Rensen, I met Dirk, entrepreneur and portrait artist. What's your name? Yeah, I'm Dirk Barton. I'm, uh, I've been a Detroit artist here for about 40 years. You know, doing uh, portraits of people on the street, besides a lot of work that I do in computer graphics and animation and uh, a lot of web content stuff. So uh, I've been living and working in Detroit for a good 40 year, over 40 years, and uh, I love the city, and it's, it's really a great city, and it gets a bad rap a lot of times, but it's really a great city, and uh, you give it a shot, you'll find out it's really cool. So in your time here, you're Right now you're doing portraits on the street for people. Yeah. And uh, so have you noticed, uh, you've noticed people walking around looking at their phone playing Pokemon, I take it, right? Right. So um, can you tell me about how it's, uh, either your observations or how it's impacted you? Well, you know, um, I don't think it's really made a whole lot of difference as far as people um, coming downtown. I mean, a few more people probably do come, uh, but a lot of people come like, or the games and stuff, or sports games. And so it, it's maybe a little more, but um, not a huge impact, but a, a slightly impact, I'd say. Have, 
Have you gotten more people to uh, ask you to draw their portraits since it started, since you noticed people playing? No, I couldn't really say that it's had much of an impact on, uh, on people getting their drawings done. It's, it's, um, it used to be I'd get a lot of people to do it, but lately it's slowed up a lot. And uh, it, it's really not as, as, um, as appealing as it used to be. I guess because people are doing so many other things and so many other things to do. And a lot of people take selfies and stuff, you know. So mm. it's, it's pretty much balanced out to where even though there's more people, not as many are, are interested in it. Okay, so there are people coming to Detroit for the first time, and in playing Pokemon Go, they're discovering a new public space. I wonder though, does this emerging technology change how we think about public space? And how does new technology shape the development and design of public spaces? Here's Dr. Cheney Lippold. That, I think that's a fascinating question. What immediately came to mind when you're talking about mobile spots is um, uh, an incident in San Francisco during the, there were a lot of protests after, you know, Oscar Grant is one person, but other people within the Bay Area were being killed, is that they were doing protests in the BART station, the actual, the, bar, the Bay Area transit system. And the Bay Area transit system police um, realized, like, because everybody's dependent on this access, what they could do is just turn off the device, turn off the Wi-Fi, turn off the mobile access, um, and then there'd be no way for the protest to actually go to the outside world. In a way that's extraordinarily damning, but it shows the exact relationship you're suggesting, that a public is supposed to be a public of openness, and the idealized public is, is open and is free and democratic, but more importantly is able to exist beyond just the bounds of the public, because mm -hmm. you know people within their homes are looking at the public and seeing politics happen. Um, but as we entwine these things and has become more as we become more attached to our phones, as you know, seemingly the, the, the history of, of the past 10 years or so is, is telling us that these are these debates around public space, but not necessarily public space, is access to public space through the technologies themselves. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of shutting off Wi-Fi, or I'm thinking about the Standing Rock uh, protests that are happening now oh, yeah. in North Dakota, that it's the public space is only being cherished, it seems, because there's an ability for other people to watch it. Mm -hmm. So on the flip side, they can't shut that off, or they haven't yet, I mean, mm -hmm. they could. Um, but a lot of people are looking at the live streams or the Facebook live, um, just videos of you know police spraying protesters with water or kind of wetting down the grass so people would slide or knowing about the world through Facebook or through Twitter mm -hmm. that then tells them that there's this event that's going on. Mm -hmm. So that intermingling for me is really important because it brings to bear a lot of the questions that we had about the 1960s and 70s protest movements that a lot of rationale for protest was to make it a spectacle in order to be on the news and then you can claim, as everybody did, the whole world is watching. Mm -hmm. What happened though is in the past 10, 20 years of protest, all, the whole world has been watching but they haven't really been caring. Mm -hmm. So there's this new attempt to kind of make it through maybe a, a closeness, a proximity, an intimacy, mm -hmm. yeah. that you aren't just reading about it, you aren't just kind of seeing it, but you're actually, your friends are there. Or you can participate yourselves and stay, much like a lot of people did, like you can actually geolocate yourself and say, I am in standing. Right, which was, that was a very interesting thing, I mean, considering what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah people all over the US and the, the world said they were there, and, then, yeah. and that, that was a very interesting kind of strategy, really, yeah. in, like, in their protests and the resistance that they're that they're doing, I found that to be, uh, you know, a great idea, really. And 
I'm not sure really how effective it was or wasn't, but it definitely it had this I don't know, it had some kind of substance to it that was new and like you could feel that it had some power behind it just yeah. because of in a way it took it to another level. And in that another level we see then that kind of what is the intersection between politics and public space and technology? Right. It's whether or not it's effective. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of first several steps that it seems people are going to be taking. Yeah. And in many ways, um, you know, I was just thinking technology, the digital world really, like that itself is a public space, right? I mean, sure. I'm, I always think initially of public space as somewhere that I'm actually at physically. Mm-hmm. But the more you think about it, I mean, maybe primarily we should be thinking of the digital world as our public space mm-hmm. because the truth is being somewhere physically doesn't make it a public space. But being somewhere online, it almost is automatic, right? Or it at least is potential to be public. There's a lot of um, really interesting literature on this because it really confounds the notion of public, too. Because in one way, the normal way that we think of public versus private is public is on the street, private is in your house. But this is kind of, it, it's, it's questioned by the fact that when you're on Facebook, that is a private site. It's not a public site. It has no. It, the only obligation it has is to its shareholders to to think about it in terms of corporate way. But if Facebook doesn't like the speech you're doing, it will shut it off. If Facebook likes the speech you're doing, you'll maybe boost it, which was mm-hmm. the case with the trending algorithm that was kind of often lambasted because there's a bunch of, I guess, um, consultants who were of a liberal bent than shutting down conservative news. That's a little bit too basic. Rather, I just think that it's not that it's not a public, but it is a new kind of public that we have to think about, a public that is owned by a company. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not public in the way that we've historically thought about the public, but in the way that the public has always been thought about. You know, Public space has always been based on class status. Mm-hmm. Um, public rights have always been accorded based on you know, how asymmetries of gender or race or class have been um, allocated. Um, but e- even thinking about... You know, speech has always been censored too, in the same way. What kind of information we get has always been regulated by what you know the New York Times wants to print versus doesn't. So there was never a pure public, mm-hmm. much like when we get into the divisions of you know, is it really a public sphere or is it really a a public that we're creating? It's riddled with problems. We have ideal concepts to try to debate through and mm-hmm. use in terms of you know, this is what democracy is. It requires a public, but it's never been free. It's never been open. It's never been equal. Mm-hmm. And Facebook just adds another layer of complexity on mm-hmm. this existing problem. Yeah, that's interesting. This leads me to my final question. If our ideas of public space are changing with the technology that we use, what about our research methods? I went back to Dr. Montgomery to discuss the possibilities. Um, because virtual reality and augmented reality is is this. In my opinion, it's uh, the next form of social media that's going to blow up, and it's going to be as ubiquitous as as Facebook on your computer once was, and then it became Facebook on your phone. And the fact that it's uh, that you can do it anywhere, and that it interacts you on a real personal level Mm -hmm. in the place that you're at, this is one of the things that I think social media has been wanting for so badly. And and Pokemon Go is nothing more than just a lens and an example, but. We can, as anthropologists, and we're trying to think of how can we, how can we push our research to another level to engage more people, to represent them um, more accurately, to more importantly, to let them represent themselves. That's right. Let them and tell the story, the narrative. In, yes. a, in our world, it, like you said, it's a much faster world. That's why people have to use technology, and they don't have time to read a 600-page monograph. That's why they want a film or mm-hmm. something, maybe an app. And I think as anthropologists, it might be... I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the most influential 
work we see out of anthropologists over the next 10 or 20 years comes from anthropologists who also focused on getting at least a background knowledge of how the digital world at, is progressing, how trends are, sure. and how to utilize that technology for research. Sure. Um, it's, and I, I will say this, it's happening in different spheres of anthropology better than other spheres. Medical anthropology and business anthropology, we're seeing this blow up and then be at the front uh, on the cutting edge. Which is not surprising because there's more money for, right. f to support these projects there. Yes. And, <clears throat> but really, I mean, anthropologists might want to consider, uh, this is something we've considered, but I think all over for any topic. You, anthropologists may want to start considering how can I develop an app that's specifically focused on my research. That's right. And that's going to be the way that you can engage with people that you never could before because you don't yeah. necessarily have to be there to tell people how to respond to get yes. your data. And, and people have done that with web pages and things, but apps take it to another level because it operationalizes it in a way where you're invested in it. And, it, and one thing I, th I foresee that it really is going to allow is that um, one of the, the questions about research and field work is what, what kind of quality data you have and what, how much quantity you have. Right. And the thing about utilizing technology, if you do it right, and that is a whole other thing. And that's going to require really, I think, partnering with developers and programmers right. who are really talented and, sure. and you see eye to eye with. But I think when, when we do that, we, we're going to see higher quality mm -hmm. data because it's going to possibly be less influenced by the person administering let's say interview questions, if you're not standing in front of somebody, then they may be more likely to give you a more truthful or accurate answer that they don't, because they don't know what you're expecting based right. on your body language. And at the same time, we, we can get huge amounts of data, which That's people right. talk about big data and whatnot, but sure. anthropologists ha are trying to mine um, big yeah. data sources that already exist, That's right. but there's no reason they can't create, create that to own. a, a Absolutely. lesser extent. You know, Think about this, instead of Pokemon Go at Renaissance Center, what if we were to talk about the fact? Um, uh, what if we were to talk about the fact that more slaves w walked across where the Renaissance is to freedom in Canada than any place in the world? What if we were to talk about uh, Joe Lewis's fist is right there and who Joe Lewis was as a person? So what if we focus on people, events, and ideas, and we operationalize it in the way that Pokemon Go is? The outcomes for learning, I think, are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Not just from an individual here. This is about me. Let me launch this app to figure it out. Um, but from a community standpoint as a whole. Um, I can see, I, I can just see it endless. And most kids do have smartphones, and if they don't, someone in their family has a smartphone. So the activities that we could create, that instead of you know chasing and hunting in groups and finding characters, you know these science fiction characters, we could be finding real characters. We could be mm -hmm. tackling real ideas. We could be looking at real history. We could be making promulgations for what's going to happen in the future. And that's what excites me most about Pokemon Go. Mm. It isn't just the fact that it's a fun game and people are doing things in a new way and that people who otherwise might not talk or intermingle are doing it. It's the fact that we can do that with anything in the name of learning and in the name Absolutely. of Absolutely. It's, it's almost like Pokemon Go is, is showing us the synergy of new technology and public space That's right. in, in a social way. And anthropology is, I think, uniquely suited to to learn a lot from this and not just benefit as a field, as in being able to produce more research that is, I would say, more topical and maybe more applicable to, to uh, outside of the institution itself. But I think in general, because of the deals with culture and because anthropology needs these new methods, it's, it's, it needs new technology to move in. It needs new ideas and new life to move in to really stay relevant because the rest of the world... Um, is already moved forward into new technology. Right. And um, this isn't to really fault anyone who does traditional style 
ethnography or anything like that. It's This is just to inform us all that there is a whole new possibility that's brought about that, okay. that no one really expected. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at David Lyons. That's D-A-V-I-D-L-E-I-N-S. For more episodes, visit colanth.org and follow the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Twitter at colanth. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H. Thanks for listening.